invite you to turn in your Bible with me to uh, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we'll be there in just a few minutes. Um, today I plan, I want to begin a series of mentions for the last couple of months. I think originally I'd planned to launch it in October, and it was going to take us up to Thanksgiving. Um, but we're launching the series this morning, and it's going to take us right up to Christmas. Uh, and, and we paused it because for the month of October, there were just some things that I feel like God was stirring in my heart for us as a church, and that I really believe were some things in season as, as God is aligning our lives to be more and more like Him and, and really in a greater alignment with the godliness that He desires for our lives to reflect to the world around us. And what I just want to encourage you when it comes to that topic that we've covered over the month of October, um, don't look at it as something that we've just covered for the year and we check it off and we go on to the next topic. But really, I would encourage you to go back and listen to some of the things that we've covered um, and prayerfully examine your life. I continue to examine my life in light of some of the things that we talked about um, and allowing our lives to, to come into greater alignment with who God is. It fits very well with even the, the word that was shared this morning letting our lives in, uh, come into alignment with more and more of who God is. And one of the things that stood out to me this past, um, this past week, just reflecting over the messages and the things that we've talked about, one of the things that I see in, in, the, in the scriptures when it comes to God and how he's working through his people, that many times just before, specifically in the Old Testament, before God would reveal himself to his, his, group, his people, his nation, before he'd reveal himself to his people in a greater measure, or just before he would move through his people in a greater measure, he first began by having the leadership just go through and, and to speak to the people and about just the level of purity they were living in and to be able to really address areas of compromise in their lives. And I really look at that and just some of the things that I believe that God's working in and how he's positioning us as a church and the avenues that I've shared about the, in our community that God is opening the doors, that just recognizing that that. I believe God's inviting us into just a new, new thing of what he's doing in our community as well as in our lives, and I just encourage you to uh, take that and, and to prayerfully consider that. Well, this morning, we look at the new series, Rise Above, and a number of years ago, I remember reading a leadership book by John Maxwell, and I believe it was the first leadership book of John Maxwell's that I, that I had read or first time I'd heard of him, and it was The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. That was the name of the book. Has anybody ever read that? The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Uh, a couple of people have. And just reading that, um, one of the things that John Maxwell did in that book, and he just did an excellent job of talking about the, the lids, the limits that we as leaders can allow to, have to settle into our lives. He used a number of examples, a number of specific things, but the overall principle, kind of the overriding principle of his entire book is that these, these limits that we choose to live with, these limits, these perspective things that we allow to, to settle over our lives, that they become limits in our lives, limits in our leadership, limits in our influence, limits just in life in general. And the picture he used was much like it's a lid that gets put on a jar, that as long as a lid is on top of a jar, nothing gets in, nothing gets out. That as long as we allow those lids to settle in over our lives, it holds back the potential of who we are, and it holds that back the potential of life, and it holds back the potential of the organizations we lead. So the goal was to take the lid off and then, and then continue to rise in the level of leadership um, that you function with. But it's that whole idea that has, has just struck me as I've been looking and just praying over for us as a church and praying over the passages that had been coming to mind uh, for this, this season that we're moving into for the Thanksgiving and Christmas season. And it's that, that realizing that for many of us, there are things in our life that hold us back. I think most people here this morning, you would not have to look long and hard. You probably already know those things that you look at your life and say, if my life we're free of this. This is how different I would be. 
If my life were free of this struggle, I would be a different person. Many times we look at our lives and we see this repetitive cycle that we live in and we continue to cycle in and continue to cycle back to not being able to break free of that cycle or that lid that we continue to live in. That there are things that hold us back, things from our past, challenges that have, we've not been able to overcome, situations that continue to impact us. Those challenges, some of them are from our own making. Some of them are by the consequences of other people's choices. But we continue to deal with those issues. And when those issues, those challenges, those lids continue to surface in our lives, ultimately they become a lens with which we view ourselves, we view God, and we view life. And in the end, they become a lid and a barrier and a cap to our lives in our walk with Christ. And so what I'd like to do is in this series, I'd like to look at some of the key events in the life of David as found in First and Second Samuel, looking at the key events in the life of David and, and looking at how he walked in the authority of God in his life as God continued to renew him and continued to lead him and continued to bring him to those places and those challenges that could easily become lids on his life. Some of them, and you probably know many of them, were some of his own making. They were his own failures, his own struggles. Others were, were uh, influence of other individuals, but looking at how David continued to rise up over those. Some of those, the topics that I want to look at in the couple, next couple of weeks involve um, rising above your past. We're going to look at that this morning briefly. Um, rising above the giants in your life, rising above your difficult people, rising above your storms, right? rising above your dark places or the caves in life that you find yourself in. But looking at those, those things that become those barriers, those lids, those limits on our lives. And so as we look through the life of David, I believe David is a very familiar Old Testament character to most. Um, but if you turn and you look in 1 Samuel 16, we'll read kind of the, the introduction of David in just a minute. But I want to give you a quick backstory to help understand where we're at in the history of the nation of Israel. For, for so long, the nation of Israel, as they became a nation, had come out of the slavery of Egypt. For so long, they lived under the leadership of Moses and then Joshua two godly men who led them into the, the promise and the future of what God had for them as a nation, really helped them to begin to be established as a nation. And then God began to raise up different uh, leaders, different judges, as they're called in the Old Testament. Some of them had a heart after God, and some of them honored God. Many of them had a, a small desire for God and a great desire for the world and success and, and conformity to the culture around them. And so what you see with the nation of Israel is that there's this continued rise and fall in the nation of Israel based on the leader. And, and there's, a, there's a phrase um, in Judges that continue to repeat itself, and it says that each man did as he saw fit. That they became their own governance, they began to live with their own value system, even apart from God. And so eventually God raised up and he recognized this continued slide. He saw this continued slide of his people and their continued conformity to the world around them. And so God raised up a godly man, a leader among the people, and his name was Samuel. Samuel started as a young boy. He was in the temple and began to hear God speaking to him. God began to raise him up and he began to call the nation back to a place of, of uh, alignment with the nature of God. God and really being able to represent God well. When Samuel, as he began to draw near the end of his life, the nation began to recognize that, and they began to see that Samuel was coming to the end of his life. They were going to need another leader. So the nation's cry began to be, give us a king so that we can be like the other nations around us. 
that they wanted to conform and be like the other nations around us. And I really believe as a side note, anytime we find ourselves desiring outwardly to fit in with the culture and world around, around us, that is a sign that inwardly we have already started the confirmation process. That outward conformity, outward behavior is always one of the final indicators of inward compromise. So the nation of Israel began to conform outwardly because their hearts had already conformed inwardly to the nations around them, and they wanted the king, so God gave them, through Samuel, decided to grant their desire, knowing it would not be in their best interest. One of the principles we see in Scripture in Romans chapter 1 talks about this in in greater detail, but God in his wisdom many times grants us what we most desire to help us see what we most lack. That he gives us what we most desire, what we think we most need, to help confront us with what we really most lack. And so he, he gave the nation the king, and they began to see quickly the, the influence of the king and how he would lead them astray. God granted the, the nation the, a king by the name of Saul. Saul was a courageous man, a, a really strong man in battle, began to lead the nation of Israel, began to unify them. But just like many of the kings before him and the leaders before him for the nation of Israel, he started out as a godly man and he quickly turned his back on God. And so it's at this point that we pick up the story and we are introduced to a young man by the name of David. And I want you to look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? So God had rejected Saul as king. How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass, pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons passed before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are all, these, are, all of the son, you, are all these the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and a handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Saul then went to Ramah. 
And so there we have the story introducing David, who became the king, the nation of Israel. And we'll look more at more, many more details in his life in just a second. And the, story, the picture really gives you a quick general idea of David and of his family. But if there's one thing that I can get you to see from the story, this introduction to the life of David as he first is introduced into the pages of Scripture, the, first thing that, the one thing that if I could get you to see is that David's limitations started at home. David's limitations in his life started at home. Both the perspective and the treatment of his family towards him shows that he was not looked upon favorably. And I want you to see at least two things from the story with David, just as kind of a backdrop, and then I'll give you some things to look at as we look over the entire life of David throughout this series. But the first thing is that David's past included a low social position, that he had a low social position. Look at verse 11. Look at what it says one more time. It says, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. If you'll notice, David is not only the youngest, but David is tending the sheep. He's been assigned to take care of the sheep. Many suggest that David's family, their, their, their line of work was, was shepherding. But either way, whether it be the family's line of work or just David's, David is tending the sheep. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you today as we hear that story. In fact, as we're approaching the Christmas season, the shepherds are a big part of the Christmas story. Uh, we love to celebrate the shepherds and all the ones who are a part of that, that first Christmas night. But in Jewish culture in these times for David, as well as in the times of Jesus when Jesus was born, in the eyes of most, shepherds were considered among the lowest of society. Their reputation was lowly at best. See, a shepherd was continually, was, was perpetually unclean and perpetually considered unreligious because of the nature of their work. The nature of their work made them stay away from society. They had to miss all of the, the Jewish celebrations, the ceremonies, uh, the different regulated feasts and things that would take place. And here's why. Look in the Christmas story. If you'll put that on, the, on screen for me. Is it, I believe you have Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, and it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. That sounds nice when we think about it in the Christmas story, and it sounds incredibly nice when we, we sing about it, but look where they're living. Shepherds living out in the fields nearby, living with the sheep. So they're continually living with the sheep. And because the shepherds, by the nature of their work, the type of work they had, they had to constantly be with the sheep. Because they were constantly with the sheep, they were not able to, to, be, be, to go through the, the ceremonies to be clean, to then be able to be around the religious ceremonies and the things in town. In fact, in the Jewish Talmud, and the Talmud is, uh, is a document that talks about Jewish civil and ceremonial law. And some of you are probably familiar with it. You've heard of it, the Talmud. The Talmud goes so far as to declare that shepherds in Jewish culture, shepherds had that they were, they were not trustworthy, and it goes so far to say that they're not even allowed to testify in court, that their witness does not count. I mean, that's what society looks at when it looks at the shepherd in Jesus' day and in, in David's day. I just think the fact that the Talmud declares that shepherds, uh, that their witness does not count, I just think it shows the sense of humor God has to invite shepherds to be the first one to witness the birth of his child, the birth of Jesus. But you see that David is one who is, by all social standards, is of the lowest in society, that he wasn't, the shepherds weren't trusted, they were looked down upon, they didn't fit in with most, they stunk, they were excluded. That's David. So David comes from a low social position. Secondly, with David, just to understand a little bit more about his background, not only is David from a low social position, but he also comes from what appears to be a low family perspective of him. Look at, once again, 
verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? So Jesse had been, had been told to assemble your sons. Samuel wants to look at them. And at the point, that point, he doesn't realize Samuel's looking to anoint the next king. So Jesse assembles all the sons that are valuable to him, all the ones that matter to him. And he says, oh, these are all your sons. There is still the youngest. And, and we translate it youngest. And the Hebrew actually says the smallest. And when it says smallest, not so meaning speaking of size, but speaking of value. And so, so Jesse says, there's one more, but I really don't value him near as much as these others that I've presented in front of you. He says, and he's out taking care of the sheep. So again, he's out doing the job that none of us want to do. So Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So we immediately see that David, in his life, that his dad has a low perspective of him, has a very low value of David, and we see this even carried forward with his brothers. Later in the very next chapter that we'll look at next week, David goes to the battle lines and he confronts Goliath. We're familiar with the story of David and Goliath. Before he ever sets foot on the battlefield, his brothers in camp begin to ridicule him. You can see the story in, in uh, chapter 17, you'll see it. But they begin to ridicule him. And it, the whole point is that his family had a very low perspective of David, that he comes from a very uh, a low, he has a very low family perspective of who he is. And we might look at that and say, well, that's because he's the youngest. That's because there's a, a number of things that, that they might be able just to look at and point to. But there's something in the Psalms that David wrote that I think perhaps sheds a little bit of light on this. Look in Psalms 51, verse 5. Psalm 51 is, is a psalm that David wrote as an as a, as a, um, expression of repentance to God after he was caught in a major sin in his life and one of the things that we'll look at. But in pinning this, he writes this. He says, Surely I will sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So many will look at that, and it, rightly so. What David's writing, and he's really giving a picture of what we see in Scripture, is that all of humanity is born into sin. That, that, there's, that there's not a standard of goodness that we can then meet on our own, but rather it's coming before God and recon, recognizing our need for a Savior. So we see this when David writes this, and we can immediately think of that. Again, Romans talks about it, that all of humanity is born into sin. And that's very well all that David may have been, been, been writing there. But there's some who would suggest that from this psalm where, where David says, he's pointing to the fact that there's the potential that David was born out of wedlock. There's the potential that David could have been uh, an Ill illegitimate child born later in life with a different woman between his dad. And again, not to create any theology or not to start any, um, any different ideas. It's just it's a possibility that some have pointed to. And that would contribute to why he is viewed lowly by his family, why he's viewed down upon by his father, by his brothers, why he's assigned a task out in the field with the sheep that others would not want. And it's in the midst of all of this that, that David... Uh, has all of these limits that have been placed upon his life. And with all of these limits that are sitting upon him before his life has really fully begun, that God begins to divinely position David and lead him from a place of insignificance to a place of prominence and influence. If there was anyone who could point to their past as disqualifying them to not move forward, as justifying their willingness to just stay put and be a victim, it was David. And sometimes in our lives, in your life and in my life, and as we can see with David, sometimes we look for God to radically rescue us from our past and from something in our lives that has happened to us, and we fail to see that instead of rescuing us, God steps into it with us and begins to redeem it to bring him glory. One of the things that happens with David in, in verse 13 at the very end of what we've looked at is it says from this day forward, from this encounter with Samuel forward, it says the spirit of the Lord rested powerfully upon David. 
that God came down in the middle of David's challenges, in the middle of David's circumstances, and began to lead him forward. See, God's aim in your life is not to make your life better for you. It's to make your life purposeful for him, to be used for his glory, to point towards Jesus, to not live for such a small thing as ourselves is to always bring him glory. And so we see this with the life of David and we see it play out again and again in every circumstance he faces, every place that he finds himself in, both in failure, in great failure, and in great success. He always comes back to the faithfulness of God and really making sure that his life is not focused on making himself better, but making his life purposeful for God. So several things I just wanna point out to you really quickly. We won't spend a lot of time on them, but just want to point them out to you. It's kind of the backdrop for the series because you'll see these things surface multiple times throughout the different points and the topics and the stories that we'll talk about with David. The first thing with David that I want you to see is that David connected the dots from his past experiences to his current opportunities. He connected the dots from his past experiences to his current opportunities. Simply put, David chose not to be a victim or remain a victim or use his past to hold him back from his future. Later in chapter 17, when he's standing before the great King Saul and he's there in all of uh, his, his court and he's there with the soldiers and he's walked through the army and, and David is standing there before Saul. Look how, look how David explains himself to Saul. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When, I turned, when it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. So this is David giving explanation to King Saul as to why he can go and he can knock over Goliath. And nowhere in David's exclamation or explanation to Saul does David say, does he, is he offering any reason why he shouldn't? There's nothing in his past that he's pointing to that he's not pointing to, well, you know, my dad didn't even pick me when it came time to anoint the next king. I got assigned shepherding the sheep. My brothers always pick on me. There's nothing that he points to from his past, and rather he looks at his past experiences that came from circumstances he would not have chosen on his own, but he looks at his past experiences and realizes they're positioning him for his current opportunity. But I really believe that in your life and in my life, as we'll see with the life of David, every obstacle we face comes with a hidden gift of growth. Every obstacle that you face in life comes with a hidden gift of growth. In Proverbs, in Proverbs 2 specifically, when it's talking about the wisdom that God wants for us to have, it talks about an individual discovering the wisdom that God has for them when they're willing to pursue it, when they're willing to, it says, though it costs everything you have, pursue it. When, it. when it's hard to find, pursue it. I think most often we short our lives from the wisdom that God wants to give us in life and from the wisdom that he wants to give us to then position us for the next phases of life because when things get hard, we don't continue forward. But it's in the midst of every obstacle that we face that we can find the hidden gift of growth. It comes with both time and perspective. And if our perspective remains focused on the wrong that happened to us, whether by choice or by circumstance, we will never move forward and see or utilize the opportunities that come our way. I realize that for some in this room and those who listen, 
That for some, when you think about your past, there's been damaging things that others have done to you. There's been things that they've done wrongly done. You've been a victim of other people's choices, and your life has become the consequence of failures others have lived with and others have made. And by no means am I saying that, that it eliminates the consequences that those individuals need to walk through because of their failure, or in no way am I saying to, that it's to keep you in a difficult place, just thinking that because of someone else's wrong, I should be able to grow through this, but realizing that there are, there are right and appropriate steps to take to deal with the actions of others. But I am saying that God never wastes your pain, and he never wastes your experience. He will use it, he will redeem it, and it will be, he will be a large part of that, and he wants you to be a part of it as well. The second thing, David stayed faithful. He stayed faithful. He stayed faithful in his current assignment. He went back, when you look in First, uh, First Samuel 16, there's this grand moment where David is anointed king in front of all his brothers who have shamed him and picked on him. In other words, he's been identified as the greatest when they looked at him as being the least. So you have this great event happen in David's life, kind of this crowning moment in David's life. And then the very next thing we find is he's gone back to the sheep. He didn't stand around and say to his brothers and say, well, look at me now. I need you to, could you go refill my cup? Could you go do this? Instead, no, he goes back to the sheep. He goes back to doing what, he, what was his current assignment. He stayed faithful with what he was currently doing. He, re, he remained faithful on the backside of a hill with sheep, long before he was faithful as a king sitting on a throne. He remained faithful. We have a family in our neighborhood who we've become close with. They have two little ones, a little girl, a little boy. And the little boy's three years old. And we've just become close with this family over the years. Uh, a couple of my older girls have, have uh, watched them, the kids, and just kind of been a babysitter with them. Um, there's many times they'll end up over at our house and they'll be with us. And I know there's someone here in the church that, that many times will um, help with childcare with the family, just being connected to them. And about a month and a half ago, maybe a couple of months ago, something like that, a couple of months ago, um, they had the, just kind of a tragedy, something that, that happened in their family. And so they had to rush away, an emergency with their daughter. They had to rush away pretty quick. And they got her away. And as they had her away and had her being attended to, the, the parents had to make a quick decision. What are we going to do with this little fellow, three-year-old? And so they call my wife. They bring, her, they bring him over. Kind of his world has just kind of been turned upside down really quick. And several days in a row that, that he's having to come over and be at our house, and, and they're just dropping him off early in the morning. They're gone for a while, and then he comes back. Sometimes uh, one of their grandparents would come by and be able to take him. But there was one day, maybe like three days into this, where he's been over and you know, it's early morning, and he's just, he, you can tell, he just wants to be home with mom. And so he's there, and she's trying to get, get him settled and, and hand over to Teresa and get ready to head out. And, and um, he, the mom, he's kind of just fidgeting with the mom, not wanting to be there. And, and finally, he kind of squirms loose of, the, of his mom and starts running down the drive and down the sidewalk toward their house. And while he's running away from our house, he's screaming, I don't like it here. He's just like, I don't want to be here. I want to be home with mom. And I look at that, at that little guy, and how much he just wanted to be back in his own little comfortable place, in his own little comfortable bed, in his own little comfortable world. And so many times when it comes to the circumstances in life and where you find yourself at and where I find myself at, it's very easy for us to be much like that little guy. That we come to circumstances and obstacles and challenges in life, and, and rather than staying faithful with what God has currently put in front of us, we begin to complain to God and say, but God, I don't like it here. I don't like the pain that comes with this choice. 
I don't like the hardship that comes with this circumstance. I don't like the, I don't like the delay that comes and, and the impatience that grows with my having to wait. I don't like not seeing your faithfulness. I don't like not seeing your answers. And so often we want to see God come through on our timeline and, and to our rescue without realizing that many times he's looking for us to stay faithful with what's currently in front of us. And you and I must remember that t- today's obedience is always connected to tomorrow's opportunities. Today's obedience in your life is always connected to tomorrow's opportunities. But there are things that God wants to position you for tomorrow or next month or next year or next season of your life, and it involves lessons that you're learning in this phase, in this space, in this season of faithfulness. Charles Swindoll in his book on David writes that God has certain training grounds and mixing grounds that he uses to prepare us to move forward in life and in our circumstances Those training grounds include this, and he says this. They include solitude, long seasons of being alone. They include obscurity, long seasons of being unseen. I think Psalm 23 is a great example of what is produced in our lives when we're willing to stay faithful even when uh, we are unseen. Third is monotony, long seasons of doing the same thing, being faithful in the menial, insignificant, routine, uneventful daily tasks of life. And lastly, reality. It's the long seasons of life. Realizing that those are all a part of how God mixes and creates his man and his woman of God for what it is that he wants to use them for. Swindoll goes on to write this. He says, getting alone with God doesn't necessarily mean sitting in some quiet place to meditate. It means getting alone and discovering how to be more responsible and diligent in all the areas of your life, regardless if it means watching your father's sheep facing a lion or a bear, or following the orders of a king. It's in those little lonely spaces that we prove ourselves capable of the big tasks. And God is never in a hurry when he's working on our character. Many times he will repeat lessons so that our character develops and that it can sustain the places that he's wanting to lead us to. Recognizing his continued work. Third thing, David found his voice. David found his voice. And you'll see this as we look at the life of David. Maybe a different way to consider it is David saw that he had value that he could bring to the situation. That one of the things that we talk about in, um, we talk about in our moving forward classes, our different core values, one of our core values is that everyone has something to offer. We believe that everyone has something to offer, that everyone has a gift or a talent or something to offer. But I think sometimes we need to realize that what we have to offer includes our voice, our perspective, our life, and our ability to be a part of, of a solution that God wants to bring about. And, and I just encourage you this morning, as we'll see in the life of David, and just to encourage you in your life, in God's kingdom, there is no such thing as damaged goods. There's no such thing as damaged goods. Many times you can go to a grocery store, you can go to, go to a different department store, and you'll find a spot in the store where there's like a clearance rack, there's a sale rack where, where things have been damaged, things have been broken, and the price is reduced, and it's kind of reduced for quick sale because you're thinking, most people don't want these, but some people might be looking for a bargain. And the truth is, in God's kingdom and in God's economy, there is no bargain rack. There's no life that is damaged. There's no story that's not redeemable. There's no circumstance you're facing. There's no failure you're facing that God can't turn around and use. But it involves allowing him to do his work in our hearts, in his time, in his way, in his season. That there's always potential when when we learn to see it through God's eyes. There's always potential for your life when you learn to see your life through God's eyes. The fourth thing, David kept his heart free from offense. 
all throughout the story of David, we'll see that David is given the opportunity to pick up an offense against someone. It could be his brothers, could be his dad, could later be the, king, the very king who he's serving, who's trying to kill him. Even later, one of his sons betrays him. And all throughout, David is tempted to pick up an offense. And time and again, we see David choosing to set down the offense and not letting it spoil the work that God was doing in him. John Bevere, in his book, The Bait of Satan, talks about this, and, and he talks a lot about how the enemy's play is always to spoil the work of God in you. And one of the greatest ways that he can spoil your opportunity and he can spoil the work that God wants to do in you, one of the greatest ways that he can do it is by introducing an offense. And that we learn to pick up that offense and it ultimately separates us from God's best and separates us from the things that God wants us to do. And the thing about an offense, and then I'll give you the last one, the thing about an offense is that an offense involves us continuing to go back and revisit and revisit and revisit and revisit and revisit the issue and continue to replay it in our hearts and replay it in our minds. And the more we continue to hit that replay button and go in the same circle, the, less, the more hard it is to go forward. That as long as we go in the same circle, we'll never be moving forward. And God's desire in your life and my life and all of our lives is that it not only stays free from offense, but we continue to move forward into his purpose, his plans, his way, his design. And then the last thing for David. David remembered that this was a God thing, not a David thing. That David chose not to hijack his story. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. This is the beginning, right where we started. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be my king. So we see from the natural realm, we see that, we see that Saul, Samuel is moving forward, that God's kind of telling Samuel, get up, get with it, and go anoint the next king. But the thing that this is telling us is that this is God's story. God's story is unfolding. So on this morning, when, when God is telling Samuel to fill up his horn of oil and go anoint the next king, David's waking up in his own bed, headed out to, or waking up with his sheep, headed out to take care of the sheep, headed into the same routine that he's been living year after year after year after year. He's in the same routine. He's out taking care of the sheep. His day seems completely normal like any other day. But in the midst of it, in the background, God is already working and stirring and positioning and doing something so that when finally David does come on the scene and his life intersects with what God was doing, he immediately recognizes God is up to something and it's far bigger than just my life and my story. And I just encourage you to not hijack your story and make it about you. God wants to use your life for his glory. He wants to use your life for his purpose. I really believe that every time we see David beginning to be tempted to take his story and to make it about him, life begins to get messy and it quickly begins to spin out of control. And David begins to recognize every time that he does that, he puts it back on God and makes it back about God and he sees God continuing to work in him. I would suggest that if David had done like all the other kings before him, had taken his chance to be king and had made it about him, he would have been just another name in a long list of kings who failed to follow God. But instead, he kept the story about God, and he followed him faithfully. And I think that with David, we're reminded in this, as, as he re, was reminded that it was a God thing, not a David thing throughout, that God's never reactionary. God's never caught off guard. We'll see that all throughout the life of David. But as he continued to recognize God's at work in this, and as I continue to trust him and focus upon him, he's going to be faithful, and he's going to lead him through every space and every season and every challenge um, that God would never be out without a law, at a loss for what was to be done next.